VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, November the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. And Greg Smith, my original producer when I started on Nightline, is producing the program this morning, along with one of the newest staff members here at VOCM, Sarah Strickland, sitting in, getting trained in to maybe have to produce this show someday. Sarah, I don't know how that makes you feel, but welcome to you both. Okay, so if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so checking in on Bay Roberts native Dawson Mercer. Scored again last night. He's off to a pretty good start this year. you got to say he's got four goals, two assists for six points in ten games, and that means he's played 92 consecutive regular season games for the New Jersey Devils. Last year, playing in all 82, the only member of the club to do so. So Mercer off to a good start. Keep it going. This is an interesting one. It's a today in history, in sports history. In 1978, the Indianapolis Racers sold Wayne Gretzky to the Edmonton Oilers after only six games, or eight games, and he scored six points. He had 104 points that year. He was the WHA Rookie of the Year. Of course, and the rest is history. Wayne Gretzky holds 61 scoring records in the National Hockey League, some of which you can put away forever. 50 goals in 39 games. He says that's his crowning achievement. There's only been six players score 50 goals or more in the entire season in the last three seasons so 50 goals in 39 games that one's done 51 game point scoring streak over three consecutive 200 point seasons so it was uh, between 83 and 85 205 208 215 the last number last five years the scoring leader averaged 110 points three consecutive 200s put it away most points ever 2857 more than a thousand more than gordy howe who sits in second place most assists in a career 1963 he has more assists than anyone else has points all right, what else we got here? Most assists in a season, 163. Most assists in a career, 1963. Most goals in a season, 92. You can forget about that one, too. 92, that one is over. Anyway, the great one sold from Indianapolis to Edmonton, 78. One more quickie. Now that many of the hardcore baseball fans are still checking out the World Series, like me, so the Phillies take a 2-1 lead after pounding the Houston Astros 7-0 last night. Think back to 2016 and one of the great sports stories of all time. The Chicago Cubs, which have a soft spot in many people's hearts, the Chicago Cubs went 108 seasons between World Series victories. And, of course, in 2016, they came back from three games to one against Cleveland to go on and win their World Series crown. So the parade that they were a couple of interesting things. They were the first team to come back from 3-1 deficit in the World Series since the 1985 Kansas City Royals. Right? Then, after beating Cleveland, Cleveland went on to take on the longest drought at 68 seasons. So... They had a parade. If you've ever been to Chicago, it's a start at Wrigley Field, down Lakeshore Drive, into Grand Park. They estimate that over 5 million people attended the parade that day. The Cubbies win in, six, in 2016. Okay, quick update here. On the We Stand On Guard Again concert, of course, Greg Smith was involved in organizing that event. They've eclipsed $1 million raised. Truly remarkable, so bravo. And, you know, it's not just these big numbers. Every little bit counts. I want to say good morning, congratulations, way to go to Alex Taylor and friends. They had a concert at uh, Mount Pearl Intermediate. They raised 900 bucks for the Canadian Red Cross. Good for them. And to raise a bit more money, today here on VOCM from 1 to 5 this afternoon will indeed be the Kids Eat Smart Radiothon. Please tune in and do what you can to support that terrific initiative. All right. 
I think my 44th and 45th knocker at the door on Halloween, they were doing a food drive, and I'm pretty sure they were doing it for Memorial University. Remember last week they had to shut the doors. They were overwhelmed with, on, on the demand side. So the donation that came in the door, I think by and large, whether it be some of the staff members that month and the food drive that some of these students uh, took upon themselves, they've reopened the door after these donations were able to flow in. But just get a load of this. And this is where the food story, I'll continue talking about it because it's one of the biggest problems in the country, and certainly here in this province. The demand at the food bank at Mon has doubled so far this semester. They served 300 clients in September, 360 in October. And nothing's coming back to earth to make things more affordable. But Mon's food bank has reopened. I mean, apparently some departments, they throw in a few shekels at the end of the week, each week, to try to keep the shelves full at that particular food bank. All right. Like you, I had no idea there was any conversation or discussion or consideration given to replacing Sinclair's Hospital. No idea. So it's, of course, a real, it's an easy one for politicians to take on, on a variety of fronts. And I don't think it's unfair to say this came out of nowhere. What kind of work had been done to lead to the announcement by Premier Fury that they were going to build a new hospital? You know, things like a feasibility study. And, or like Jim Din says, the interim leader of the NDP, where in the guiding principle of healthcare transformation was any mention of St. Clair's in the health accords work? And it's not there. There's, you know, and then Mr. Dim will go on to say, and I think Barry Petten would join him with saying things like this. This is how politicians act. When there are things that are dogging the party or dogging the premier, they'll make these type of announcements as a feel-good story to hopefully deflect from other stories that are going on. We're all too smart for that, though, right? We can consider various options and policies and programs at the same time. We don't need to be distracted from stories, whether it be people want to talk about the fishing trip visit to John Risley's Lodge in Labrador, which, of course, he shouldn't have done. In politics, uh, perception is reality. That's how people run with it. So he shouldn't have done it. You know, that's just plain and simple. Add to the fact that some of the controversy surrounding the timing and the lack of the mention in the health accord or feasibility study is how the province is going to proceed. And this is not uh, specifically about St. Clair's, but it's with the public-private partnerships. It's a whopping big conversation. I don't think it gets enough attention, and it's not necessarily about this hospital because we've entertained public partners, public-private partnerships in the past. Some remains to be seen how they'll work out. For instance... One of the topics brought forward about the controversial announcement to rebuild or, pardon me, to replace a 100-year-old hospital is who gets the contract. So Marco and Chris Hickman, they've got the contract in a public-private partnership to build a new mental health and addictions facility on the floodplain at the Health Sciences Complex to build, her or, pardon me, a new penitentiary. Okay, we'll see how those proceed, but we've got to talk about these P3s. It may indeed come with some short-term immediate relief on the taxpayer, but over the course of 30 years, you know, I got a note last night from, uh, I guess, the communication person at the Department of Transportation about what we can expect insofar as a transparent process. Okay, because it has to be that way. Please do tell me, talk to me like I'm 10 years old, and paint me a picture. How does it work? Exactly. How do we incorporate profit for the private sector to get involved in these types of projects? Give me an idea what the dollars and cents looks like over, say, 10-year increments. Where are we if the government had to go it alone in 10 years versus the P3? And then give me the picture at 20, and give me the picture at 30. And then what happens after that? We talk about it like it's a well-understood issue, but it's not. 
if I don't understand it as clearly as I'd like to, I would imagine I'm not alone. And not every P3 is the same. Building a penitentiary is different than building a hospital. Building a long-term care facility is different than building a bridge. So let's get down to the brass tacks and have a better understanding of what this P3 means. That's the biggest part of this story for me. Now, they haven't determined whether or not they will proceed with a P3 for the new hospital, but very likely they will. And just look at some of the things where we know something has gone seriously wrong inside a P3, notably the two 60-bed long-term care units in Grand Falls, Windsor, and in Gander. They were plagued with problems. So I had a tweet from a fellow yesterday that is appreciating the fact we're talking about these P3s. You know, the private sector is much more nimble and certainly better suited for hitting budgets and what have you. Look no further in some debacles that we've seen the government entertain. But how about the quality of work? So in those long-term care facilities, they were scheduled to open, and then, of course, they didn't because of all sorts of deficiencies that were identified. Water issues, flooring issues, lighting issues. There was hundreds of deficiencies. So how did that even happen? We don't really know. There was, of course, when the work had to be redone, it came with an additional cost. How that was absorbed, we're not entirely sure. What happened in the inspection process? Because if you just rough in some plumbing, there's got to be an inspection before you cover it up with drywall. So how did we end up with all of those deficiencies that kept those beds unavailable for residents who then, what happened to them? If they were at home, they had to wait. If they were in the hospital, all of a sudden they had to pay a fee to stay in the hospital through no fault of their own because those beds were not available. The two facilities were plagued with deficiencies. So the P3 is as big a part of this as the timing and the politics and the perception and the optics, whatever it is. But if you want to take it on, we can take it from any angle. And listen, we don't have to fall for the old political ploy of you give us a good news announcement to shield us from some bad news or shield, us, shield the party from some other issues that people are upset about or uptight about. And notably here, as mentioned by opposition party members yesterday, is the Risley fishing trip. All right? Where does that even fall on your priority list of quote-unquote scandal or concern, but anything inside of that envelope, especially the P3 concept, we just have to understand that a little clearer. Let's stick with healthcare for a bit. And this is a story done by Rob Antle over at the Corp. And this is about the fact that there is still no IVF clinic here in the province, no in vitro fertilization. One in six families in this province face fertility problems. Many don't want to talk about it. Many don't even want to entertain the possibility to travel elsewhere in the country to get the IVF services, the government put forward a plan that was $5,000 of travel subsidy, and I think you could use it three times for a total of $15,000. Some families who have been successful, they can spend in the neighborhood of sixty and 70000 before they're successful enough to have a baby. So when you blend in the aging demographic of the province, when you blend in the fact that there are a couple of doctors, here's where the story gets at really confusing for me. So... There are doctors here who are trained and ready to go in an IVF clinic. Two notably are Dr. Sean Murphy and Dr. Deanna Murphy. They're not related, but they are two IVF specialists. They put forward a recommendation to the government in 2018. They're not hearing anything about it. If we have doctors that are ready to go, and here's where it gets, I think, interesting and absolutely confusing, is that they submitted a report that would not introduce any new costs to government. No new costs. How exactly that works, I'm not really sure. But what the doctors say is that they would take some of their MCP-covered uh, procedures into their private clinic, 
cover the operating costs, and so IVF would be available in this province, no need to travel, tens of thousands of dollars, and all the worry that comes with it. And these two doctors say, no additional cost, you leave it to us, and they'll take care of it. So if that is what's on the books here, what would be the hesitation? So, you know, people do get, I think, a little bit weary of talking about the private offerings in healthcare, even though it's already happening, and a lot of it is happening. But for this, uh, one in six families have a fertility problem, issue. And if we've got doctors here, trained and ready to go, with a plan that doesn't see any new cost to government, there's got to be something I'm missing, because if that's the way it's proposed by these two doctors, uh, Dr. Murphy and Dr. Murphy, you would think we would tackle that and attend to it, because we all see where we're going with the age of the province. And on that front, and sometimes when we talk about the aging demographic, people think that we're talking about them in some ill will regarding the province of seniors, and of course not. That's not the intention of talking about the realities of the aging demographic, because we have to factor it in to how we develop policy, where we build, where we invest or spend, you know, preparations for more home care and or long-term care facilities, even though institutionalizing seniors is not the way forward, is not the best plan. So that's why we have to talk about the numbers. Inside the stats right across the country. And this is from the 2021 census. 19% of people in the country are over the age of 65. In this province, is 23.6%. 19% nationally, 23.6% here in the province. So this is not looking down our nose at any age group or another. It's talking about preparing to do the right thing before we end up doing it chaotically and more expensively after the fact. So you want to take it on? We can do it. And speaking of aging demographic, this story here, boy, oh boy. An 84-year-old woman, somewhere in Ontario, she went to a rental car outlet in Mississauga called Green Motion. So she's 84 years old. They were trying to rent a minivan. A bunch of the family were going to carpool to New Brunswick to visit the daughter and the son-in-law over the summer. She goes to the counter, presents her ID. Her driver's, driver's abstract is clean. No speeding tickets, no accidents. And she's told at the counter, I'm sorry, you can't rent the minivan. Why? You're too old. What? <sighs> Wonder whether or not that actually violates her rights. You know, sounds like discrimination to me. So there's many rent-a-car companies in the country that have a minimum age. For Green Motion, you have to be 23 years of age to rent one of their vehicles, and they no longer rent to people over the age of 80. Many, many of the big outlets here in the country do have a minimum age, but nobody can find a rental car company that has a maximum age. So if the woman has a clean record and a valid driver's license at 84 and going to carpool and switch driving, uh, driving duties between Mississauga and New Brunswick, nope, too old. And there are going to be some sort of investigation into whether or not that violates the Ontario Human Rights Code. Anywho, you want to talk about it? How are we doing on the phone there this morning, team? <laughs> All right, a couple of quickies. You know, so I mentioned Risley a while ago. The whole bit about green hydrogen seems to be all the rage. You know, we know the Port of Argentia is making a play. And, of course, World Energy, GH2, Mr. Risley and his group. There's been some 31, land, 31 submissions for land, crown land. There will indeed be a, uh, the call for bids will happen in the middle of December, I think December 15th. So there's a lot of people getting in on wind energy projects or hoping to get in on them. Add now to the list Briar Renewable Fuels, which, of course, many people still know as Come By Chance. They're trying to operate as effectively and as efficiently as possible regarding costs and their emissions. They currently have a play regarding gray hydrogen, 
But they're now looking to see potentially uh, a green hydrogen project established adjacent to the refinery. And of course, they're not refining like we were used to the fuels coming out of Come By Chance. They're producing what they call second-generation biofuels, renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. They use animal fats, uh, waste oils, plant-based waste oils. And so it's the same chemical compound, but it's not mixed with petro, pet any petrochemicals, so it has lower emission. But now they're getting it on the green hydrogen. I'm like you, probably. We hear it all the time. We talk about it all the time. We understand the process somewhat, very much unlike mining and forestry and the oil business and the fishery because we have experience with it. So how do we backstop and protect ourselves the best way possible? Because we are talking about crown land. We are talking about our water. I'm not too worried about the wind because the wind's going to blow or the wind's not going to blow. We are talking about our deep sea ports. And we know we check off a lot of the boxes for these types of projects, but it looks like the Brea... Renewable fuel crowd, they're into it as well. And, of course, if you want to talk about what was the tragic story of the explosion back in September, flash fire had come by chance, and one man eventually succumbed to his, in his injuries, we can take that on as well. And here's the controversial one. In some corners, the federal government announced yesterday that they are going to welcome or admit some 1.4 million new immigrants over the course of three years. They say it's in an effort to address labor shortages. They're talking about introducing, quote-unquote, new selection tools, targeting sectors like construction and in healthcare. Okay, there's lots of opportunities to talk about immigration. Hitting the targets is one thing, and it doesn't make you a bad person to ask questions about immigration. Notably, there's a housing issue in the country. So yes, we can target the skills we need to have a positive impact on labor shortages. Absolutely. And it's a great country to come to. But we also have to be prepared. You know, we need a place to live. So if they're going to likely be attracted to the Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, there's housing crunches in those cities. And yes, hopefully some of them will make their way and set up shop and set down roots here in this province. So... When folks are willing and watching to ask a question about these things, we have to have a legitimate conversation. There is a housing issue. So it's fine to have setting these targets. It's fine to be really optimistic with a big number like 1.4 million uh, immigrants over the course of three years. But how's the preparation coincide with that big number? Anyway, you want to take it on? We can do it. And we can also talk about the public inquiry into the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act, which continues in Ottawa, it's interesting is the word I'll use for it. And one more public hearing for those interested. Tomorrow uh, afternoon at the House of Assembly at 5.30 p.m., there's going to be a public, a public hearing brought forward by the Standing Committee on Public Accounts talking about the issues surrounding the veteran and the Legionnaire ferries. Right back from when they selected the uh, shipyard, the damaged shipyards, there was some confusion as to whether or not we're going to have to pay a tariff to welcome them into Canadian waters. And then, yes, there has been a, a ton of problems associated with both vessels. So if you want to have your input heard, the public hearing is tomorrow, 5.30 at HOA. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. My favorite is when you join us live on the show, and you can do that right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. John, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Doing fine this morning. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Great. Uh, so, yeah, so, so what I'm calling to talk about today is uh, students are taking to the street at 11 a.m. We're meeting at the clock tower at the Memorial Campus. We've got students from Marine Institute. We've got students from CNA. Uh, they're taking buses over. 
We're heading to the Confederation Building. Uh, we're protesting tuition hikes. Uh, you know, the, the administration at Memorial has doubled tuition after the provincial government has cut $68.4 million uh, over five years, the plan is. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not happy about it. And uh, if you want to join us, come down to the uh, Confederation, sorry, come down to the, uh, the clock tower at, at 11 a.m. Where are you targeting the protest? Because is it aimed at the provincial government withdrawing that $68.4 million, or is it aimed at the university? Because the university is in a kind of a strange spot with how they evaluate and manage their budget constraints throughout the year. So who are you focused on? Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, uh, we recognize that the, you know, the, the t- without the $68.4 million cut, uh, or without the $68.4 million uh Budget that is uh, given to them, it's, it's hard to you know make that money work. We're still not happy about some of the decisions that they're making in terms of what they do spend the money on, in terms of the bloated administration. But our main focus today is on the provincial government. Uh, you know that 68.4 million dollars is the difference uh, between doubling tuition and uh, keeping the freeze. And so uh, yeah, that's that's where that's why we're marching to the Confederation Building today to really make our point heard at the House of Assembly. John, how would you propose the future look? Because, of course, when we see the tuition hike stories, they're very, very real, and access to post-secondary education is critically important in this province. Would you suggest that the funding be reinstated and we go back into a tuition freeze uh, place? Because I think the tuition freeze played a role in leading us to this doubling of tuition. So what do you propose the future should look like for accessibility? Now, I, I, wouldn't, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that necessarily is the reason why they're doubling tuition. I, I think that the, the reason everybody's pointing to in the government and the administration is, you know, times are tough. We've got to tighten the belt. Uh, if we just look at uh, this, this, this uh, last, uh, you know, update from Siobhan Cody, she said that we had a $479 million surplus that comes from, uh, you know, the oil revenues. And while this is temporary, you know, if we have this surplus in the budget now, you know, we are way – uh, under budget uh, per se for the amount of spending that we can do, you know why not put that into tuition fees? It's a, uh, it, it's really a, uh, you know the only thing that this is going to do is recoup the funding. The doubling of tuition is only going to recoup the funding that's lost from the provincial government. It's not going to create new revenue. No, uh, let me just see if I can clarify my position or my thought and get your reaction to it. For the couple of decades when we had the tuition freeze in place, as a po- proposed, uh, or pardon me, as opposed to some annual small incremental increases, because what we saw is that we just saw increases in student fees, which were not covered by the freeze. The freeze, uh, the, pardon me, the student fee doesn't get you any sort of tax break like a tuition fee does. So that my thought is that because we waited so long for any adjustment period to be made all of a sudden it came as a whopping big adjustment as opposed to whatever whatever suggested minimal incremental increases to keep up with the cost of everything like even if mon's going to attend to its infrastructure deficit the cost of labor and materials has gone up exponentially over the last little while so what do you make of that thought that if we hadn't done it and maybe look to the future just a scheduled understood uh, publicly available document that says here's what it's going to cost incrementally from here to say 2030 or whatever the case may be well you know memorial has been spending uh, a lot of money even during that period you know we bought the battery hotel built the new science building there's there's been there's been money around they've been they've been spending a lot of money on uh, new infrastructure uh, you know, the, my 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 point of view is that there's there's no uh, it, it's not about the expense; it's about the investment that the provincial government is making into the future of our province. You know, it's not a it's it's not about making money; it's not about uh, you know whatever it takes to educate our population and uh, bring people in. 
uh, especially international students, uh, students from uh, other places in Canada that want to come here and want to spend their money, want to work. Uh, you know, that's a boon for the, the Newfoundland economy. We, uh, we, we need to grow our economy, not slow our economy. We're, we're, uh, we're pricing people out of coming to the province. We're pricing people out here that want to get an education. And uh, I, I think it's a bad decision overall uh, in terms of the health of our province. I totally get that. I mean, I talk about education as much as I can, and access to post-secondary is going to be part of our sustainable uh, future if we're going to do it right. Have we priced ourselves out when we compare the cost of attending Memorial University or the Marine Institute to other similar institutions, uh, say, for instance, across Atlantic Canada? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of people from Atlantic Canada have come to Newfoundland because mm-hmm. of that prices, you know. A lot of people from Nova Scotia, a lot of families uh, that don't want to pay that extra, uh, uh, you know, price and still get a high-quality education. You know, the, the, we, the perception that because Memorial has been affordable, that it's not a high-quality education has been completely false. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that, you know, people will uh, recognize that we are great, uh, you know, students, great academics, great researchers, and we give good education here just by the quality of our, our leaders. And, you know, the, the people that are coming out, like from Verifin, the, the, the amount of people that come out, high-educated, high uh, you know, high-skilled, smart folks coming out of here, I think that's, that's really what our selling point should be and the fact that you can do it affordably. You know, I, I, I think that the, we, we shouldn't get bogged down in what all, the rest of Canada is doing because we have our own economic needs here. We have our own unique needs, and we should be stimulating our economy rather than trying to stifle it. Fair ball, John. And you look at Verifin, the vast majority of their workforce, which is somewhere in the like 800 or something, the vast majority are Mon grads, which is really cool and something that we should indeed be bragging about. Uh, so and all of this, of course, was just for the purpose of conversation, just to get some of the, uh, the, the, the nitty-gritty of how we are, where we are, with that money being taken back by the provincial government. So give the folks a detail one more time about the where, the whens, the whats for the protest today. Okay, yeah, right on. So uh, at 11 a.m., we're meeting at the clock tower in front of the UC, and then we're marching to the uh, the Confederation building. Uh, rain or shine, come on down, uh, show your support for the students, and uh, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll have a great turnout. Well, last one uh, just popped in my mind. Someone, someone asked me this question yesterday. When we talk about international students, and so now they're in the $20,000 price range for their tuition, do you, I don't mean to put you on spot, do you have any idea about our retention numbers of international students? Well, here's the thing. From uh, Vian Timmons' own estimate, there's going to be 30% less people enrolled in Memorial. But, you know, we haven't uh, been able to have a look at those numbers because they haven't, haven't released them yet. Hopefully we'll get a, a fair picture of how much damage this, uh, this doubling is doing to Memorial and student body. Uh, I, I don't know the breakdown. I wish I did. But that's the thing, you know, uh, international students are some of our biggest uh, uh, leaders here on campus. We, we, need, we need international students. They're, uh, uh, they're coming here to Canada. They're, uh, you know, they're getting jobs. They're starting a life here. And we should be not trying to push them away. You know, $20,000 is a whole lot of money for, for most people here. So uh, it's, really, it's really not a good thing. Appreciate the time. Good luck today. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a good one. You too, John. Bye-bye. There you go, the protest, the day of action at Memorial University. There is no question that whatever we have to do and however we get there, access to an affordable education is such a big deal here in this province. Now, the province did step up and say that they were going to continue some support by establishing more provincial grants for folks who simply cannot afford to attend. But where do you think the sweet spot is? If you want to pick up on what John had to say or anything else, you can do it right after this break. Don't go away.
Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the province of seniors advocate. That's Susan Walsh. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'd like to start to say thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to your listeners. I keep hearing from seniors as I'm going around the province that, you know, uh, one, all these recommendations get made and reports sit on shelves. And, you know, yes, it's been a year with the, this position vacant and things didn't move in the way they needed to, but I'm here and my first commitment was to get a status report out about where is government with following through on our office's recommendations and we've achieved it. Uh, I've uh, I've seen the status report and I remember the initial report back from 2019. So there's 25 recommendations. I hate to start with what hasn't been done, but let's do that. 24 have been fully implemented, pardon me, 44% fully implemented, 44% are partially implemented, and 12% saw saw little or no meaningful progress. What's inside that 12% envelope? So the report itself falls into three themes. And so under the aging in place theme, the recommendations that um, haven't been implemented really is just one. And that, uh, so... You know, there are ones who've had are not completed, but they've had some progress, as you've noted. Mm-hmm. But the one that's not implemented yet is the cost of driver medicals for seniors 75 plus being covered under MCP. Under the second theme, which is healthcare, the which is the largest area where things uh, haven't had the same progress as as the two other areas. Um, there are two areas that have not been implemented, and one is the offering of the shingles vaccine for low income seniors, and the um, the idea of including dental, hearing, and vision care under the uh, chronic disease strategy under the Department of Health and Community Services so that they're planning these things as part of their strategies. And so they're really the recommendations that haven't been at all implemented. They haven't started any work on. The issue with uh, at the age of 75 needing a medical to have your driver's license renewed, is that at 75 you have to do it every two years and at 80 every year? Yes, I believe you're correct on that. Okay. So now the promise is, so let's continue on with this status report. Uh, what are some of the other highlights, whether it be a good job done by government or other things you want to put in the minds of the listeners this morning? Yeah, thank you for that. So, I mean, 44% completed, 44% underway, that tells me there's progress. I mean, there is progress, and clearly, um, you know, many areas of government are, have taken the recommendation seriously and are doing their best to move forward. And and I know some departments have said to me, as I've been, you know, getting updates and meeting with them, that, look, COVID fell in the middle of this. And so, I, you know, I, I do appreciate that, but that's three years ago now, you know, that these re- recommendations went out, and so we do need to move on with it. Um, some Some areas that I'm uh, really uh, pleased to see is that you know the whole business of age-friendly communities has moved forward well. In fact, that's one area where we're seeing government going above and beyond. They've set up a joint committee across three departments of government, uh, municipal and provincial affairs, CSSD, and uh, health and community services, to really look at how they move this forward jointly. So I'm, I'm pleased with that. That's really good. And there has been some more money put into housing uh, this past year to look at the home repair program, an additional $3 million, in fact. But that's a one-year funding. So I'm watching this because 
we really do need to see the home repair program increased and we need the wait list decreased and we need the wait time decreased. We're lucky enough in this province that we have the highest home ownership in the country and we want seniors to age at home and seniors wish to age at home. I mean, you know, I hear from them regularly on that. But they have to be in homes that are not falling down around them, right? And so they, they are going to need assistance with that. So that, but, you know, at least we're seeing some progress there. The area that I, I'm, you know, most concerned about falls into the healthcare area, and and I, you know, probably the department that was hit the hardest by COVID, and I mean, you know, we talked before, and I've talked publicly about the review of the personal care home and long-term care home system. I mean, that was recommended three years ago to benefit the people living in there and the people working there, because we have to keep the people working there who are doing a good job there. Obviously, we got to weed out like in any organization where people shouldn't be there. Um, so, you know, I really want to see progress there, and I understand that the department is is committed to, to that, at least for sure for the long-term care, and I'm hopeful on the personal care as well. The other is the dementia care plan. I mean, back in 2020, there were full consultations. Our office participated. We've not seen that come out yet. I know there's a committee, and, and I've talked with the Alzheimer's Society. They're very connected to it and speak positively, so I feel good about that. But I want the plan to come out, and I want timelines attached to it so that we can see that move forward. Patty, I mean, I know you follow. You're up on the research all the time, and you would have seen the CanAge report. I mean, this country like many, are not really ready for the rise in dementia that's going to happen. And this province is going to see it even more so because we have an older population, and older the older you get, the more at risk you are for dementia. So we need a plan, and we need it, we need it yesterday. Uh, Alzheimer's, uh, the uh, national body, they say that the number of people living with dementia will triple between 2020 and 2050. So at this point, there's about 1.6% of the Canadian population had dementia in 2020. That's going to rise to almost 4% by 2050. So preparing for that is key. Absolutely. Inside personal care and long-term care, you know, some of this may have been triggered by the seven privacy breaches, and we'll hope that the investigation goes well by the RCMP. That's an identifying people who do not belong in these settings. But I'd like to get your thoughts on some other things we see in the, the two levels of care. You know, the story of couples being separated. We know that, you know, the story of Gavin Will and his parents. At one point, the father, his dementia had proceeded, uh, progressed to the point where he needed more acute care. But then the couple were separated together for some 60 years. I know it becomes complicated. It's not just easy as flipping a switch say we will never separate anyone. But what do we have to do there? Because when we're talking about healthy, dignified, happy settings for people to age in one of these institutions, that's the furthest thing from. What do we do? Right, there are models out there. We don't need to recreate the wheel. We need to look at the models that are out there and learn from them and develop it. It's 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 incomparable to to me that that we would separate people who've spent their full lives together. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've recently heard the minister speak to that as well. So I think he's in the same place. It's about looking at the models. And for me, this is a full continuum. While while this report focused on personal care and long-term care. And, and and long before we had the recent media, right, long before the health accord, we were saying that whole, those two systems need a full review. But it's also about home support. It's also about palliative. Absolutely. It's, it's a continuum. And if they, you know, if the committee I'm calling for that will oversee this review, which would include community organizations and my office, not just internal government, then that will be part of the discussion. It's, you know, it's about the models in each of these systems. It's about the structure. It's about the oversight. It's not just about 
you know, patient satisfaction. It's the full piece, and it needs to be taken inside, outside of government to have engagement from community. Seniors know. I mean, I do these consultations. They stand up. They know what they need and what they want. Yeah, and aging in place has got to be the priority. You know, of course, it won't work for every single senior, but for many it will. We just need to prepare for it and understand how it works and how it looks. I wonder if you think these two items should be included, and I talk about this every now and then, but because the numbers are startling to me, and that's the use of restraints in long-term care. Uh, the national average of 6.5% of residents in long-term care spend some time each day in restraints. In this province, it's 14.2%. We need to know if that's a staffing issue. We need to know if that's a punishment issue because the disparity is absolutely out of this world. Then you add in the issue with the number of residents in long-term care facilities being given antipsychotic drugs, sometimes not even uh, prescribed for them. The national average is 21.9%. Here in this province, 38.3%. Should this be included in this comprehensive review? Because those numbers numbers just don't make sense to me. Absolutely. This this is a full comprehensive review of these systems. It's it's the whole picture cuz you can imagine, I mean, how are we ever going to keep uh, the staff there and engaged and interested because they're seeing this too. I mean, you can be sure that if they're not getting the support around the ratios that they need to care for for these seniors, then that's stressful for them. And then who knows? You're right. Maybe decisions are being made based on the circumstances they are working in versus what really should be the best interest of the patient or you know uh, resident. I t- I think. Uh, it's almost like building it from the ground back up. It really is. And I, I know health is talking about they're looking at models, and that's a separate review. That should not be a separate review. This is the whole system that needs a look all together, the full process, start from the bottom, build it back up. And, you know, add to it uh, just how much horsepower is brought to bear by volunteers. And when I talk about volunteers in the healthcare system, in long-term care or personal care, how much time is given to residents by family? And that speaks to the lack of the staffing ratio that probably will do a much better job in the safe and dignified care of our province of seniors inside these PC and LTCs. So I think we've got to have a better understanding of, of that as well. Uh, Susan, anything else you'd like to add, including when the next opportunity is for people to have a consultation face-to-face with you, virtually or otherwise? Uh, yes, thank you for that opportunity. I will. The, the, the other thing, just to finish off the personal care, long-term care, and home support, we really need to look at the training. We really need to look at the training requirements and, and support for, for these people. Okay, so yes, we had an online uh, consultation last night, our first virtual session. It was very well attended. Oh my goodness, we went over time and people I know would have stayed longer, but I felt, uh, I felt like, oh gosh, I can't keep you any longer now. Uh, it, it was amazing and, and I'm so thankful for the input. Uh, we will have an in-person session in Mount Pearl. Our next session is November 24th. Oh, sorry, our next session actually is November 22nd and it's our second virtual session Um, and so you'll get information about that on our website then we'll have an in-person one on November 24th in Mount Pearl and then we're out to the west coast uh, the last week of November and uh, up to Labrador uh, following that the first week of December so um, our website uh, seniorsadvocatenl.ca 
will give you all those details, and our survey is online. And we're getting a good response to our survey. I'm really pleased, but the more the merrier, the more information. And I know I know it's a bit lengthy. I apologize for that, but really wanted to get as much information as we could from everyone. So you know, if people would go on our survey, you can access it through our website or it's nlseniorsadvocatesurvey.ca. And if you or anyone in your uh, office would like to send us an email reminder before those consultations, we'll be happy to relay that information to the listener and appreciate your time this morning, Susan. Thank you. Appreciate the interest, and for that, we'll do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Susan Walsh, the province of Seniors Advocate. Okay, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. That includes Ward 5 Counselor here in the city of St. John's, Carl Ridgely. Looking for some response from the province from the recent flood damage suffered in his ward. Roman's there to talk about new immigrants, and now we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Well, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Ward 5 Counselor in the city of St. John's. That's Carl Ridgely. Carl, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Great today. How are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, Colin, in just to, to give an update and, and try to get some information actually uh, from the provincial government concerning post tropical storm Earl. You know, uh, Earl was different than Fiona in that the, the damages came in in dribs and drabs. It wasn't significant like we saw with Fiona and people phoning their insurance companies and getting responses a week, 10 days later never had coverage, didn't have enough coverage, weren't covered at all. And some, some individuals didn't have no flood insurance at all. So as that came to me, then, you know, I realized that there was a significant problem in, in Kilbride and the Goulds area. And uh, anyway, in conjunction with the city, and we got all our numbers together because in order to meet the criteria with the federal disaster relief, you needed $1.7 million in damages. So with the city, we had... $1.8 million in damages. And that took time to calculate those numbers because to, to, to fix the issues that we had with Mooney Crescent and the boardwalk and in, in Big Goods Park and the Ghouls was destroyed. You know, there was significant damage done, but to get estimates on all that infrastructure and do the work that had to be completed, when we finally got our number together, it was $1.8 million. Uh, we had a public meeting in Kilbride at the Kilbride Rec Center and uh, Close to 100 people showed up, and it was it was a good meeting. Uh, you know, people were concerned. You know, I got all their names and numbers, if they had insurance and didn't. And approximately 50 families had inadequate insurance or no insurance. And when we done up a total number on that, it was another $900,000 estimate in damages. So we're, we're at the, the $2.6, $2.7 million mark, which meets the criteria for the federal relief. So we had our meeting with... Uh, Assistant Deputy Minister in the provincial government on October 14th. Uh, we're looking at this is two weeks past now. Still haven't heard nothing official back from the government. Uh, I know that the Premier is aware of it because he met with Mayor Breen uh, shortly before our October 14th meeting. And uh, so that was brought to his attention at that time. Uh, Minister Osborne was in the meeting with myself and Gary Coffey uh, with the Deputy Minister, so you know Minister Osborne is aware of it, and being a great advocate, I got to say he's he's pushing hard for for to get the help for the individuals in Kilbride and the Goulds. But uh, I still haven't heard nothing back, and it's it's frustrating. I'm still getting calls, and people are not getting answers. 
And you know full well, and I'm not saying that you're making this point or any of the residents are making this point, even though some of them might be thinking it. When the province stepped up so quickly for the residents in Port of Basque, for instance, we have a similar situation here. Not the devastation that we saw on the southwest coast, but if you got flooded out and have no flood insurance, then you're in a very similar spot in trying to rebuild or repair. So we'll see how that factors in. Uh, so let's see if we can't get a response. If we have uh, cleared the hurdle for triggering this federal support, let's just get it done. Have you spoken with uh, any of the uh, Liberal members of Parliament? So I did speak briefly with Minister Regan. We were at an event together a couple of weeks ago. So he, he is aware of this. And, you know, um, again, this got to be triggered by the province. So, you know, unlike in, in the case of the city of St. John's and the Kilbride residents, uh, the, the federal government weren't aware of the damages. Unlike Fiona, the federal government declared a state of emergency and a disaster, so it automatically triggers this disaster relief. In this case, with us in Kilbride and the Ghouls, the province has the triggers, which in, in turn the feds come in and take care of the bill. That's right. That's right. The province has to trigger that request, just like yeah. uh, uh, support from the armed forces, for instance. Uh, right. Before we run out of time here this morning, Carl, unless you want to say anything else about that issue. No, you know, it's just, you know, the bottom line is it's, you know, I support the people on the southwest coast. They needed the help. Any any help they got from the Red Cross, the federal government, provincial government, and all the the corporate sponsorships, you know, you look at Mary Brown's and what Greg Roberts done and everything else, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, but the taxpayers in the city of St. John, you know, to see an event happen at Mar One, supporting Fiona and their tax dollars, you know, and listen, I agree with the, the event at Mar One, 100% supporters, and, you know, that was planned even before we had the numbers in with Earl. So, like, that was done long before uh, anything with Earl was actually, you know, we had our numbers together that we could even contemplate putting a request into the provincial government. So I'm not taking nothing from that. That's uh, that's an event that went on and, and, like I said, glad to support it and the city was glad to support it and 100%, like I said, do what we can for them. But just the optics of it, you know, when you got individuals in St. John that, uh, that are asking the province for help and not getting a response yeah. for the feds, then, you know, it's a it, it's a bad look, that's all. Last one before we uh, run out of time and get to the news. Uh, a fellow named Jesse called from uh, Shea Heights. I know that's part of your ward. About a dangerous intersection where if anyone's ever driven it, you're coming down the hill and people coming out of the side street, they just can't see you coming. So it sets up a lot of dangerous circumstances. They've been talking about this for years. This guy, Jesse, in particular, has been working on this one for a year. He's a retired law enforcement officer. I can picture it in my mind's eye just how dangerous it is. Do we have an update on that one? So I, it's funny because uh, I, I'm working with Jesse closely on this, and uh, we actually met last night at Shea Heights Community Board, which I'm the city rep on, and uh, Councillor Ellsworth actually sits on it as a, a community rep. So they actually have two councillors on that board, and, and we are we are looking to get that corrected. Uh, there is options out there. I know there's one on that sharp turn if you're heading towards Kingsbury, you know, there's a blind spot. There's there's issues at that intersection. When I was out campaigning, crossing the road there, you know, you're taking your life in your hands and the kids that are crossing there, it's a, it's dangerous going back and forth to St. John Bosco. Uh, I, I'm confident that the traffic services, that we will have something, because I'm in discussion with them on a regular basis, 
So, you know, that, that whole uh, department at the city is working on it. And we were told yesterday that we should have something, a plan in place within the next couple of weeks. So it, it something's going to happen there. Uh, I can't tell you exactly what yet because, you know, there's talk of blasting the, some parts of the, the, the intersection where there's a blind spot. you got to blast rock. There's driveways there that, that, that are in, in play. So, you know, it's not just as simple as go up and cut a few trees down in your sight lines. No, no. It's a, it, it, it takes a bit of work and a bit of time. And I, I know Amir at the city is, uh, is doing, you know, he's doing his due diligence. We got the numbers. We, we know what the speeds are. We know the traffic counts. And, and it's alarming. When you're, look, when you're looking at 30-plus kilometers over the postal speed limit, it's a concern. And uh, we definitely got to slow the traffic down there, whatever way we do. Yeah, I think Jesse said that 80% of drivers were going double the speed limit. I mean, yeah, yeah. that's all anyone needs now, to know right there. Anyway, uh, i got to get to the news, Carl. Appreciate the time. Okay, Keep in touch. Yeah, anyway, thank, thank you very much. You're welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. It's Carl Ridgely. Ward 5 Councillor in the city of St. John's. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, certainly appreciate the patience of those in the queue. We'll get to you and then to you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Roman. You're on the air. Good morning. Hey, I wanted to talk about the immigration because I was watching the news there, and I think by 2025 they want to bring in another half million uh, immigrants. Now, I feel like this is not actually a good solution to our labor shortage. I feel like ultimately the problem is actually in-house in our, um, like our youth or whatever the case may be. So I'm going to share a few experiences on why I don't feel this is a good idea. When I was working out west, specifically in the Calgary Hospital, we had um, we had about 20 workers, all insulators, but about 15, 16 of them were uh, from South America. So we had, you know, trained professionals. We had a bridge engineer, we had a couple accountants, a doctor, and whatnot. Now, this is the thing that irked me. I fully agree with us in Canada having certification for doctors and stuff coming from other countries. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is it puts the these guys in odd situations. So his recertification was going to take two or three years. Um, It was going to cost him, I think, like 15, or he was already $15,000 in. And all at the same time, he's working construction as an insulator for 18 bucks an hour. You know what I mean? Like, it's not fulfilling anything immediately. All it's doing is just keeping, you know, big businesses profitable. I really don't agree with it. What I'd like to pose to you and the other listeners is... How do we motivate our youth or other folks to be able to, you know, fulfill those shortages as opposed to having to, you know, import new people? Okay, there's a lot to that. So motivation works in a variety of different ways, doesn't it? So some people will argue that the labor shortage is caused by the lack of wage offerings keeping up with the CPI or inflation or cost of living, however people like to uh, measure it. And there's something absolutely to that. But would we have enough people in the country at this moment in time without aggressive immigration policy to even fill those jobs with attention to wage and with the number of Canadians that are set to retire this year and in the next five years? Would we even have the people here to take it on? The evaluation that's been done says clearly no. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to have targets set at 500,000 per year, 
but we absolutely do yeah. not have the people to cover off the roles that where we see shortages, even if we had a wage conversation that kept more and more labor participation numbers up because they're down in this country. we got a productivity problem on top of that. So I get where you're coming from, but at some point, without targeted immigration policies in construction, healthcare, IT, and other places, we're just going to fall behind. So I'm not pretending to know what the bright number is, but I do know there's got to be a number that we focus on. Uh, okay, that's very fair then. Um, I still think, like, I don't know, maybe we need to, uh, for example, like the Syrian uh, refugees from a few years ago, there's hotels in uh, London, Ontario that are still, like, you know, they have these people that are sitting on the refugee status, which means that they're coming out of tax dollars. So some of them were getting evicted as of, like, five, six months ago because they haven't found any. Now, the thing with this is, like, so we're taking in these new immigrants, to pay for them and hope that some of them want to work and don't want to work? Like, how do we how do we streamline this so, you know, it's not taking a chunk out of the people that are working? There's four different pathways to entering Canada. Some of them refugees, like some of this conversation surrounds as much a humanitarian issue as it does an immigration issue, whether it be folks from Afghanistan after the Taliban took over again, whether it be folks running for their very lives from Ukraine, whether it be Syrian refugees. So there's political asylum, there's refugees, there's pathways to permanent uh, residency, there's pathways to citizenship. I think the way the feds are talking about it is this is immigration focused on skills, focus on targeting uh, different uh, different labor shortage areas as opposed to straight-up refugee numbers because refugees are a very distinct standalone silo, one of four, inside immigration policies in Canada, and they long have been. Yeah, but that is a huge number, too. That's a lot of people that are here, you know, not really doing anything. And, like, some of them are well-trained. Like, when I was speaking to the ones in London, some of them do have degrees and whatnot, but then they have to go through the... Once again, the Canadian certification, which forces them into cheap labor jobs just to be able to get by once they do get their uh, work permit. Yeah, we have an issue with that. It's long been the case, you know, to have a better understanding of how that works. Like, even if the process begins before you even leave your home country to come to Canada, because if you arrive and then you begin the paperwork and then you begin the process, then it just extends it. So let's say I've applied to come to the country, whether it be as a refugee or one of the other pathways. Let's start the process before you even arrive so that when you arrive, you're in gear. Things that you don't need support of in Canada that you can probably do on your own in preparation for the support you're going to need here, whether it be English as a second language and or accreditation issues, you're 100% right. If folks, like I had an Uber driver uh, in Toronto one time who I, I believe, he was a physicist and he couldn't get a job because he couldn't get accredited with the university that he attended. Let's figure that out. There's got to be a way. I mean, we're not reinventing the wheel. Oh, yeah. People move from country to country all the time. Like, look at the Euro- European Union. One of the best features of that is that you had a mobile workforce and no big tangles with accreditation and licensing and visas and all the rest of it. It made the thing it made things easier for individuals. Maybe not necessarily countries, but for individuals. Let's see what their best practice is for accreditation and get on with it. Yeah, I agree. Thank you very much. Roman, good to have you on the show. Appreciate the time. You bet. Take care. Take care. Uh, <laughs> okay. There's a big hello in the background. So, yeah, look, there's always going to be controversy about the numbers. The biggest problem for me is, of course, we have to attend to housing. We do. We have to understand it. The biggest problem with some of these immigration issues is we're not that prepared as a country either. The process is just too long upon arrival. We've got backlogs, people who have applications in for different silos and different pathways, to whether it be a permanent resident or a citizen. It's taking too long. 
Maybe some of that is a staffing issue. Maybe it's just we've got a convoluted process where we've got overlaps and redundancies and people jump through the same hoop two or three times for the same outcome. So the process has not changed in a long time. All that's changed here between the past two governments, we'll say the Harper Conservatives and the Trudeau Liberals, has been numbers. The process is exactly the same. So if we're going to increase the optimistic number of welcoming newcomers, it's got to be directly associated with the process being able to keep up with the numbers. No sense having the backlogs where they are. And yes, if there's an application for, whether it be political asylum, we'll call it, or refugee, humanitarian immigration, skilled, uh, skilled targeted immigration policies, some of the prep work can be done before you leave that country. It can. Because some of them, it's left to their own accord to take care of it. Now, when you arrive, there's all kinds of things we need to do. Of course there are. But the process has not changed. Only the numbers. So if the process doesn't keep up with the numbers, guess what? All right, before we get to the break, let's go to line number one. Say good to the executive director at Kids Eat Smart. That's Selena Stoyles. Hi, Selena. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Today, of course, is our VOCM Cares and Kids Eat Smart Foundation Radiothon. Uh, happening from 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock today. So it's great to come on and just to share with you that we're so excited, you know, about being back, being being live with you. And uh, today is all about our breakfast clubs. It's about our donors and it's about our children. So as you know, every school day we're serving over 38,000 meals to school-age children in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we could not do that, and it would not be possible without the support of our partners, our donors, our volunteers, and our school communities. It's amazing the work that you do and no stigma attached to it. When a child arrives at school, he or she deserves a healthy, nutritious breakfast and all the societal uptake that we get as well. So they eat together, they become buddies over a meal, which we all talk about sharing a meal with our friends and family. One question that uh, has been popping into my mind is I've done these radiothons many times with you folks and I really enjoy it, is that we used to say every dollar buys a breakfast. Does it still? It absolutely does. Oh, good. Um, we absolutely, we have an amazing number of volunteers in our 274 Kids Eat Smart Clubs, and they help shop, they help order, and because of that, we're able to buy large amounts and large quantities. So, you know, that being said, we ensure that every child who comes to school has access to food at no cost. And I will share with all of your listeners today, you know, the stats are saying that one in four children in Newfoundland and Labrador under the age of 18 lives in a food insecure home. So every dollar, people say, you know what, $5, $10, every dollar is a breakfast for a child. So if you're able to give, that is, you know, we're going to continue to have access to food at school. Children have to come to school and they're coming to school hungry. So let's, as a community and as a province, let's rise up today and ensure that every child has access to food at no cost to the child or their families. And I think that number adds up to some 22,000 Newfoundland and Labradorian youth under the age of 18, food insecure. And, you know, sometimes we use these uh, characterizations or descriptors. If you come from a food insecure house, there's a s- extreme likelihood that you are hungry because sometimes we think food insecurity simply means it's too costly to get to the healthy options at the grocery store or the distance to travel to get the healthy option or stuff like that. Vast majority of food insecure households, the children are hungry. And just imagine trying to navigate a day in school hungry. It's difficult enough for me to navigate a day here on this program, but imagine being a child with all the additional pressures of those peer groups and age groups and the difference between the 90 percenters and the 50 percenters and everything else you factor in. Hunger just makes it completely unmanageable for those children. It does. And you know what? 
children having breakfast at school and access to healthy food, that plays a vital role for children. And, you know, now more than ever, we are seeing, as you just said, the cost of food increasing. We're seeing the uptake of our children and youth coming to breakfast. Those numbers continue to increase. So now more than ever, our school-aged children and youth who live in poverty or food insecure homes or for whatever reason comes to school hungry, they need our help. And it's important to know as well, Patty, that Every dollar we raise today, 100% of those funds directly support our Kids Eat Smart Clubs here in Newfoundland, Labrador. And if you're listening and you have a school that has a breakfast club, that's us. And you can call and you can designate your donation directly to the school Mm -hmm. that you live, work, and play in, in your own community. So today, we're asking for your help. It's 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock today. But at any time, people can go to kidseatsmart.ca and make a donation. And we'll see you at the Avalon Mall around 1 o'clock. Uh, I'm part of the first hour. I think it's myself and Greg Smith. And so please do, folks. I know you step up to the plate every time we have one of these radiothons. And Kids Eat Smart is one of the charities that we're trying to support today to keep those clubs up and running. Good to see you. Or pardon me. Good to have you on. I'll see you later on at the mall. Thank you so much, Patty. And thank you to all your listeners who are going to give today. Thanks, Lena. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Linda Stoyles, the Executive Director at Kids Eat Smart. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the public hearing that's scheduled for tomorrow, 530 at the Confederation Building, regarding the veteran and the legionnaire. And then we're going to have another chat about the Mon Rally today, the Day of Action. Don't go away. And a welcome back to the program. Let's see. Breaking all the rules. Line number five, the NDP member for St. John Centre, the interim leader of the NDP. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello. Thanks for having me, sir. No problem. What's on your mind this morning? Well... A few things, uh, certainly with regards to the uh, Student Day of Action. Hello? Yes, sir. Oh, I thought I, I thought it was my apologies. I thought I hung up on you. Nope. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll, I'll be uh, marching with the students here to deal with, uh, to protest basically the tuition increases and the lack of affordability. That's the first thing. And certainly then I'm back in the House for the, uh, for the discussion on the, ma- the major legislation today is uh, on the uh, provincial creation of the Provincial Health Authority, which they seem to be rushing through. But right now I just want to have a little chat, if I can, about the, uh, the student rally that's, uh, and the march starting at the clock tower. Uh, and I was listening to your discussion earlier about immigration, and I'll start out with this, that use that as a lead-in. And you're right, I think. You hit the nail on the head. We're not prepared in many ways, and based on the immigration issues that I've I dealt, dealt with here, it is too long. The rules are a little bit convoluted, and it's creating a lot of unnecessary uh, um, hardship, uh, anxiety for people who, who want to settle here and after jumping through the hoops. And uh, but I think, you know what, maybe the process needs to be removed. And I'll use that then to, just to jump into the whole thing around the tuition increases and what we heard and uh, and what we've seen. Like, you know, uh, certainly when you've got students um, now looking at uh, their, their uh, uh, the tuition has tripled. We heard it at our town halls from students. They were looking at it's just become that much more unaffordable to uh, to stay here, and a lot of these are new uh, are people from outside the province uh, and outside the country. Um, I know that there are people here in our office uh, who the reason they are still they stayed in Newfoundland is because they came first to uh, to um, uh, to Memorial University because of the affordable tuition, and then 
and and the it ended up staying. And 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 be honest with you, I went I when I w- went to university way way back when, uh, it was certainly the other thing that uh, impressed me was the quality of instruction. But I look at it this way, Patty. I don't know what your circumstances are, but for me, I was able to. I lived in St. John's, uh, so I was ba- basically able to live at home. Um, and uh, in my summer jobs, I could afford the uh, the uh, you know to pay for the tuition. But in the end, I didn't have to worry about paying for rent or board. I certainly didn't have to worry about paying for meals as such. You know, like uh, feeding all those things that come with it. So in many ways, I came out of university, uh, you know, uh, pretty well uh, without a whole uh, without a whole lot of debt. And I was able to carry on uh, without uh, and carry on my life. But for a lot of people who are coming here, whether they're from outside the city or uh, outside the country, doubling uh, they've got the other expenses. And when you add when you triple the the tuition, when you look at the uh, and I've spoken to you about this before, the lack of house, affordable housing within the city. Um, and when you uh, when you see when you hear stories of the food bank at Memorial University closing down because really they they too much demand, it tells you that there's an affordability uh, piece here. But is that is it exacerbated by the actual issues that are plaguing the country with cost of living and inflation? Because you know, for instance, I was told that international student numbers are down, when in fact that's not true. There's 4,200 international students the fall of 2022. That's 1,000 more than pre-pandemic. So we haven't turned them away, or they haven't been uh, encouraged to not come because of the rise in tuition. And this work gets extremely complicated for me, Jim. Yep. Is that every single circumstance is different. Yep. Uh, like, for instance... We put some money aside in a registered education savings plan to help afford tuition when the boys reach the age to go to university. That helped. Not everybody has those. But folks who do, there's a uh, lesser of an impact on your pocketbook or your bank balance when the kids go to university. Someone who has parents with money or of means, we lump everybody into the same pot when, in fact, that doesn't make any sense for me. to me. A means test for the levels of support makes a little bit more sense, and similar to how they approach adjudicating a student loan, but even if it's in the form of bursaries or grants, whatever it is, you know, because if I can pay simply because I save for it, it doesn't mean my neighbor can. They need the support, not me. So that's where I get a, a bit of a convoluted setup. And plus, we have a three-tier system, locals, other Canadians, and international students. So some of this, in my opinion, Jim, we kind of did it to ourselves with how we were so unwilling to talk about the sacrosanct issue that was a tuition freeze. Consequently, the government was at some point going to make a similar decision to this one, whether it be right or wrong or indifferent. And so we kind of set ourselves up over two decades to maybe have no choice to do something. Now, an incremental annual increase would maybe have spared us this issue. So all we did and all we saw was an increase in student fees that was just masking the fact that we were just charging more to come. Well, that, and that's fair enough, and and, you, and you're right there with 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 uh, with a number of things in terms of um, let's say affordability. You're right; not every family can afford to set up an RSP, an uh, RESP. For sure, uh, and and that's and that's a fact. Uh, you know, people are living close to the edge, and 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 with the and right now we've got that the perfect storm with uh, with regards to uh, to uh, the inflationary costs and so on and so forth. But I guess uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at this from another point of view too. It is in terms of an investment because 
uh, and I, I definitely see the university as an investment in in future. I go when I when I went there, and I would say when you went there, and when others go, they're looking at investing in their future. But in many ways, it's about how do you attract people to stay here as well. And and people who come to university, they they find it affordable, and they stay here and they make a life here. And I think in in many ways, not just here in St. John's, by the way, but out, out in Corner Brook as well. Uh, you know, it, it's it's. Difficult to get around this city, and and I would say around this province, with the lack of any uh, affordable uh, public transit transportation. So there are a lot of other costs that come into it. But I think in many ways we, we got, uh, and to your point, that maybe we created this over <laughs> over uh, decades. Fair enough, but maybe we need to start looking at uh, education too as that investment, not in infrastructure, but also in in people. Uh, I know. I know when I, I was looking at the, there was a story, I think, uh, with regards to the level of um, of um, uh, immigration. New Canada, prior to the pandemic, and Canada uh, had uh, some of the highest rates of, um, of uh, immigration, yet Newfoundland and Labrador uh, had some of the lowest, because, primarily because people said, well, we didn't know where Newfoundland and Labrador was. Now, there is a significant effort to bring newcomers in, and I think you've also pointed out to the fact of the lack of housing and everything else that goes with it. But I would suggest that for many people coming here is, you know, like if you want to pay people an education that's affordable and that they can say, you know what, and will stay. And I have talked to, uh, uh, it's interesting, graduate and postgraduate students who are who are looking at, they want to make Newfoundland and Labrador home, their home. There's another problem, of course, that comes with it, is that they're also looking for a job then that can help pay off the, uh, the pay off the, the, uh, the student loans. But I, I, it's not, it, it may not be an easy uh, one, uh, one solution uh, fix here, but I think we've got to start looking at affordability in, into this, because thrown to the mix, you've got, uh, and, maybe, and maybe it comes down to like a who needs who needs the money? I don't know, uh, or who needs to break. But I think at at, the, at some point you've got to look at how do we make this uh, affordable, and how do we keep it affordable, and how do we make sure that our our biggest resource, the people of this province, the students, the next generation, the ones who are going to be looking after you and me in the old age homes, uh, are, are, are have uh, have the light, have uh, are able to make a future here. And that's what I'm looking at, I guess. And I, I think, and I get it from you that uh, that's where you're looking at it as well. Is how do we make this work for everyone? Yeah, I try to put education on the top of the list, but to be honest with you, yeah. because without it, we're doomed. No matter how many fish are in the ocean or minerals are in the in the uh, in the uh, in the earth, they, all these things cannot be achieved unless we have an educated population. You know, there's got to be fast track for uh, skilled graduates as well. So yeah. you know, you're much more likely to set down roots when you know you've got some security and some certainty in front of you. And for housing, for the life of me, I can't understand why we don't reinstate the home share program immediately. I would imagine if you took your three months to set it up, dozens of folks struggling with affordability regarding housing would have that issue rectified. We'd be helping seniors, helping students, helping the university, helping the province, helping the economy with one simple program that might cost the province 50 grand a year. So for God's sake, let's do that. And, and you're right. And look, make it affordable. And, and you, you come down to this is a question of affordability of people being able to, uh, uh, to be study. Most students who come from Abroad, they don't have the ability necessary to work uh, at, uh, at you know to uh, for, uh, uh, at jobs that probably I would have had when I was as a as a uh, as a person who was born and raised here. So <clears throat> I think we've got to take that into account. And many of them uh, actually want to uh, work more, but uh, there there are restrictions on that. Uh, and uh, so it comes down to how do we make this affordable? Because I tell you.
you, you know, I, I don't think you can, I, I know from a public school system, you can't learn if you're hungry and if you're stressed out by where your next meal is coming from or where you're going to live or if you can. And yeah. I would say the same thing for post-secondary, and especially if you're from here from a way where you don't have family supports or if you're from another part of the province or the country and you don't have the family supports. I was fortunate. I had family here. I had my friends here. And I would say that if you live in it within the area, you've got those supports in place. But I think we've got to uh, cons- uh, always remember it put education first, but put the people first as well. And what do we need to keep them here and support them and, and give them every opportunity for success? The hours for international students being able to work is being lifted, isn't it? I said, well, from the ones I've spoken to, uh, probably not soon enough. Okay. Appreciate the time, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's Jim Din, NDP leader, St. John's Centre, member of the House of Assembly. Break time when we come back. Dave Chafe, my buddy, he's the chair of the board of directors down at VOWR and a musician. He's got an event coming up this Sunday. He'd like to tell you about it. Mike wants to talk about the public hearing, Into the Old Fairies, the Veteran and the Legionnaire. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Mike, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Good morning, Patty. Morning, Mike. I uh, found out yesterday that they're having more public hearings on the committee on the Auditor General's report. I mentioned to you, I think, a while ago that we haven't heard anything on to this. But it seems to me like awful quick that I heard about it yesterday and the hearings that happened today. And now they're sending questions that you might want to ask or who's there or whatever. From my understanding, they found Max Harvey back again, and this other uh, used to be a deputy minister there or something, Jamie Chippett. But they're now, uh, I'm not sure who the latter, latter fellow is. But, uh, you know, this thing is, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what they're trying to prove or what they're getting on with this or what's supposed to come out about it, but it's not supposed to be an investigation. They're doing an inquiry. Now, the last time I wrote them several emails on things that I said there, they were being deceived, they weren't giving truthful answers, and many things. But he says that, well, it's whatever the committee wants to ask, and it's not an investigation. It's uh, whatever purposes that it is, whether it's pure waste of people's time and that and whatever. Yeah, okay, just one thing. I misspoke earlier, said that the public hearing is tomorrow. It's today. I don't know how I said how why I said it's tomorrow, so it's five thirty in the House of Assembly today. But why would there not be reasonable questions asked when you have a liberal led committee on an issue that was procured by the Progressive Conservative Party? So why would where's their interest in hiding anything or sweeping anything under the rug? I don't know, because uh, you're right. Like just started out, I think, as the PCs, and then it came into the Liberals. But I think the Liberals really capitalized on it afterwards and brought a bad decisions into worse decisions. What does that mean? Well, it was a harebrained scheme anyway, because the people there, when the PCs were at it, weren't qualified to make the decisions or pick out theories. And they had nobody there qualified, really, into making those decisions to look at the overall aspect of what it was going to mean to the docks and what changes had been made to that suit it. Uh, like, they never had anybody there with the total picture. And, like, repairs, these... You well, know, what's, what's that got to do with the Liberals today, though? What does that mean? Like, how did they make a good thing out of it, or however you put it? 
Well, right now they started hiding all the repairs that need to be done, all the errors that were done aboard the boat that shouldn't have been done under warranty. Uh, that was all under their watch. Why all this stuff? ABS working with the government. Now, ABS are responsible for a lot of the faults and the stuff that should have been done under warranty and that and whatever. Like, I don't know all the answers to it. All I know is what was done and uh, why they did it or whatever it had to come from them. I can't figure out. It bewilders me of what's going on. And the fellow who probably knows the most about it and about the bills, <clears throat> he wasn't asked. Uh, he was over in Romania and done a couple of trips over there. And uh, he knows more about it probably than anybody. He knew and worked with the representative over, over there. Uh, why isn't he called to the hearings? And I just, uh, right now, I don't see what their objective is into all of this or what the committee's objective is. What are they going to find out or what do they know? We know that it was another boondoggle, whatever you want to call that, for the want of a better word. But uh, the thing is, this committee is, they don't know the questions to ask. And when they're given the wrong answer or being deceived, they don't know the answers to correct that. And overall, I don't know, I'm just made with the, the whole process that, you know, we can't answer questions directly. We got to write in answers to the committee to get to review it and then decide whether they're going to is relevant or uh, whatever with regards to, you know, what's happening. And uh, now, like yesterday, I heard about it. Now, how are we going to send in uh, questions that you would like asked to a committee that is in meetings all day and the, and the, and the hearings are this evening at 530? So, you know, uh, I don't know, it seems like awful rush in that or whatever and whatever's coming. But one question I would like to know is why this person who had the most experience in that and everything else was ignored in all the decisions. And they still, you know, when the ships were being built, they sent them over there to do inspections and that and stuff. And then why is he part of this? I don't know. Who's the chair of the committee? Do you know? Uh, um, one Mount Pearl. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> And the name is on tip my tongue. Uh, no, uh, Lucy Styles, isn't it? Is the chair of the standing committee on public uh, accounts? The chair. I can find out. I, that's no problem. I can figure it out because I'll zip a, a quick email over to their office to pose the question you just posed and see if we can get an answer prior to the hearings this afternoon. Appreciate the time, Mike. Stay in touch. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Right before we get to the break, we're going to line number six. Say good morning to the chair of the board of directors at VOWR to tell us about an event coming up this Sunday evening, November the 6th at 7 p.m., of course, at the beautiful Wesley United Church. My friend David Chafe. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Patty, so good to talk to you again. You and I go way back. That we do, sir. Back and, uh, to you've been a very, very generous supporter of uh, VOWR and of my work in music, and I'm, I'm very grateful. I, I just want to take a moment uh, this morning to let your audience know that there is an absolutely fabulous event, uh, as you say, coming up this Sunday evening, November the 6th at 7 o'clock at Wesley United Church in St. John's. It's an old-fashioned gospel sing-along called Sing the Story, and it's a very simple concept, and 
frankly, I think it's the uh, kind of event that a lot of people are craving these days. Uh, at Wesley United, where I am also the uh, director of music, we have a team of 10 amazing singers, and they're each going to take a turn at the microphone and lead the audience in singing more than 20 very well-known old-time gospel classics like uh, uh, it is no secret. I saw the light. You can't have a gospel thing along without Hank Williams. His eyes on the sparrow, on the wings of a dove, and on and on it goes. All rugged cross. Oh, just a, just a closer walk with me. Oh, my God. I, I can take up your whole show going on about uh, all of the music we have. It's just going to be absolutely amazing. Uh, so I'm going to be the program host, and uh, I'll be hosting directly from the piano, where I'm going to be hammering out these uh, great old tunes. Uh, Wesley is a very large open space, uh, so we have surround seating for several hundred people. So there's going to be plenty of room for safe, distanced seating for people with those concerns. And if people are uncomfortable attending in person for any reason, I am very glad to say that uh, the sing-along will be simulcast live on VOWR radio as well as on Wesley United Church's Facebook Live and YouTube channel. So all viewers would need to do is go to the church's website, which is wesleychurch.ca. That's www.wesleychurch.ca. And that's a great website, and uh, there you can easily find the uh, YouTube and Facebook Live links, where you can follow along also to the words right there on the screen. And our in-person audience, and I hope they will number many, will be provided with songbooks, and I hope we'll sing at the top of their lungs. You too, Patty. No one has to be concerned with how good of a singer you are, or how often, or even whether you attend church. It's not about that. This is purely all the all music, all the time. No preaching, no reading, just amazing singing of old songs uh, that many of us in generations before us grew up singing. And on top of the pure joy of singing together, I'm glad to say that admission is merely a free will offering, if people are able to do so at the door. Those not able to attend but would like to support events such as these at Wesley United can simply go to wesleychurch.ca and find out how to contribute there. So that's Sing the Story, a good old-fashioned gospel sing-along taking place this Sunday, November the 6th at Wesley United, located on the corner of Patrick Street and Hamilton Avenue in St. John's, and we're going to start at 7 o'clock sharp, and it'll run just over an hour, and we'd love to see you in person. I'm glad you have songbooks available, because you might know every word to uh, I Saw the Light, but maybe not His Eyes on the Sparrow. So, exactly. you know, you don't want to exactly. just participate in one or two tunes that you happen to know or are familiar with from your, your past as a congregant, what have you. So that's terrific. And Wesley United Church is a beautiful place, and yeah, it's at sure the corner is. of Patrick Street and Hamilton Avenue. If folks were wondering where that might be. Awesome. Thank you so much, Patty. Good to have you on, David. Good luck with it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's David Chafe. He's the chair at the Board of Directors at VOWR. So this Sunday evening, November the 6th at 7 p.m. at the Wesley United Church, sing the story. I'm sure many of our listeners will be happy to do exactly that. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going back to Memorial University, and then we're talking about 40 Days for Life. What does that mean? We'll find out. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Bruce, you're on the air. Hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Awesome, awesome. Uh, well, my name is Bruce. I'm uh, I'm calling in uh, from Muntu. I'm uh, one of the, on their board of directors. I'm just calling in to promote uh, today's Day of Action, All Out Like '99, where students are going to be making their voice uh, heard uh, at the clock, Mun Clock Tower today. Uh, when we, and we will be uh, marching to Confederation Building uh, to call for accessible and affordable education and protest the recent uh, uh, implementation of the tuition hike and the cuts to Memorial University. We believe in a fully funded education. Fair enough. And we spoke with uh, Jason, I believe his name was, off the top of the program this morning promoting this. And then Jim Din offered his political support to the Day of Action as well. Yeah. Uh, just, just is only for the purpose of conversation, because for, 
full disclosure, which I know is a really lame thing to say, is I try to talk about education, accessibility, affordability all the time. So I get it. And I know what access to means for a long-term, sustainable, uh, viable province here with an educated population. Okay, that's it. How do we navigate these waters? And I know it's probably not that helpful to do a province-to-province comparison, but in Nova Scotia, they give about the same amount of money to universities on behalf of the provincial government, but it's to eight universities versus the one here. How do we try to massage it so that we can find the sweet spot? Because uh, all or nothing is probably going to end up at loggerheads where we get nothing achieved. So where do you think there's a sweet spot that can be found? No, no, I totally understand your concern. I think it's uh, important to look back on the founding of Memorial University, where uh, this institution has a unique uh, obligation and responsibility to the people of this province um, as its only uh, university. So uh, making sure that, uh, you know, as the uh, only option for post-secondary education in the province, uh, I think it's important to make sure that institution is funded and that people that want to, uh, you know, get a post-secondary education are able to do so. And, uh, you know, with the rising tuition hike, um, you know, uh, where we see tuition not gradually reduced up, but just suddenly doubled, going from twenty five fifty uh, to 6000 for domestic students and going from 11000 to 20000 for international students, uh, this is just going to be a financial barrier, and a lot of people are going to opt out of attending. So, um, you know, I believe the funding is, you know, uh, something that's very important, uh, you know, cutting it, uh, to my, in my opinion, it shows a mismanagement of priorities in the provincial government. Uh, the, the phase out of the operating grant, $68.4 million, uh, you know, that is going to have more long-term economic effects as people put off purchase, purchasing and the economy down the line. So this isn't just about education. This is about many, many people's futures. This is about the future of the province. And uh, might I add, it's uh, it's not a fiscal is- issue either because, um uh, this uh, funding that is being cut represents uh, a small amount of the provincial budget. And, you know, recently we had a surplus, which is, you know, uh, only as a result after years of austerity and uh, high oil prices. Um, $68.4 million is uh, roughly one-third almost of uh, the $194 million the government just dished out for the one-time checks uh, for people uh, making up to 100k and then people making over 100k. So um, I think, uh, you know, it just... Uh, it shows that the government must uh, fund education, and I think it's a very important issue. How is the new provincial grant working for students who really need the support? Because when government felt the backlash, that was the step they took. For folks who really needed some assistance in affording uh, education at Memorial University, that grant program was created through mm-hmm. some thresholds and means testing that yeah. was involved. Do we happen to know yeah, how many yeah. students are able to avail of it and how it's working? Yes. So what I've heard of the uh, the grants is, again, you know, it's great when their supports provided anywhere. But, you know, uh, these are not these are patchwork solutions to uh, the larger issue. And, you know, placing uh, having means tested barriers just means that less people are going to be able to avail. Also, in the provincial uh, since the provincial gr- uh, grants, only uh, students from Newfoundland and Labrador can avail of them. So no, uh, not other Canadian students, not international students either. So um, if we're going to try to, uh, you know, draw people here, you know, I think this is also related to our population crisis, our demographic crisis, our economic crisis, our economic future. Um, you know, these, uh, these don't fill the void that, uh, you know, the tuition freeze, the 22-year tuition freeze, uh, you know, uh, had in place. You know, and also I'd just like to mention to your viewers, um, uh, 
this uh, the tuition freeze uh, came into effect uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. That was uh, won by students uh, making their voices heard. You know, when Premier Brian Tobin implemented it, he was famously quoted as saying, "Students made it impossible for me not to uh, freeze fees." So, um, on all it like 99 and kind of wrapping up, you know, the entire. Uh, theme. Um, I think it's a powerful sentiment that, you know, collective action can spur change. And uh, also, you know, um, I think the tuition freeze was a good policy and something we need to uh, reinstate. Uh, last one. And of course, it's 11 o'clock at the clock. Tar, you begin You make your way over to the Confederation building. And this is not to change the channel on the topic that you called to discuss. But inside of all of these things, with affordability on tuition, you factor it and everything else, food, mm-hmm. housing, all the rest of it, I'd like to throw this out there for Monsu to give some consideration, because I've been talking about it because I think it makes sense, is to somehow bring back the home share program. How many dozens of students could be satisfied with lower rent, help a senior, uh, we're winning at the provincial level, we're winning in the economy level, we're winning for the student, a winner for the senior. I wish someone would take that and carry that torch and bring that program back. No, no, uh, I definitely agree with you. And I think, uh, you know, uh, on my work, uh, work with the board, it's something I definitely would like to bring up. I mean, uh, uh, Monsu is all about uh, supporting students in any way, uh, shape, or form. And having uh, opportunity for accessible rent, you know, housing is something that's very important. And, you know, it factors in uh, to the larger economic issue, and that is cost, you know, and how can we support students the best we can. Absolutely. Good to have you on. Good luck today, Bruce. Thank you so much, uh, Patty. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope everyone who's listening, everyone who can, uh, please, uh, we'd love to have you at All It Like 99, 1 o'clock tower, 11 o'clock. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, we've got to get it right. <laughs> That's one thing I think we can all agree on. Remember, at one point, it was free to go to Memorial University. Now, I'm not really a free university kind of guy because I honest to God think that's just a gift to the rich. Right? For folks who can afford it, they should be paying for it. Uh, just where I sit, and a lot of people disagree with me on that front, but c'est la vie. Because yeah, for folks who whether had an RESP, and I mentioned the registered education savings plan, someone sent a note along and said, what is that? How does it work? And yes, people are struggling to make ends meet. You can start with $10 a month. That's where I think RESPs, most of them begin, is as low as 10 bucks a month. But for my money, and I'm not a financial advisor, don't take my word for it. Just maybe ask someone who's got the credentials to be uh, giving you advice. It's one of the best vehicles in the country to grow your money. Automatically, the federal government contributes 20%. So that's up to $400 a year coming from the government without your money earning a single dollar on the market. 20% return guaranteed. Uh, up to 400 bucks in your account, so that's $2,000 threshold for your input. All right, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Doug, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how you doing? Doing great, Doug. How you doing? Not, not bad, but I want to give a bit of a shout-out today to uh, Dr. Glenn Powell's and uh, Well, we all wear about Doug, we've got a terrible connection here. Maybe take a sidestep one direction or another, see if we can clear it up. Okay, let's try it again. Any better oh, now? Much better. Go right ahead. Okay. I just want to give a big shout out to uh, uh, Dr. Glenn Follows and the, I guess, the entire staff of uh, uh, St. Clair's 
Um, all we are talking like when it comes to the medical system now is crisis, crisis, and crisis, of course. But uh, I know it's fortunately or unfortunately, I've had, I've had uh, uh, two appointments at the uh, at St. Clair's in the past year. Uh, but I tell you, they're, buddy, they're, they're about as efficient as, as most fast food restaurants around now. Like, I, ju- I just walked in the door then about 10.25. I didn't know where I was going. I had to get directions from, from someone. Down the hall, they said, get registered on the right, got registered. Okay. And, and like I, I just barely sat down, and, and Mrs. is calling my name, went and got registered, out the door. She's down the hallway, down on the left, went and sat down in there. And like most people, I didn't hardly got a chance to get my phone out of my pocket, and, and another girl was in. Down here, got me in, got me uh, weighed up, the blood pressure and the whole shoot match. I went in at, at about 10.25, and I looked at my watch when I came out the door, and I said, like, God, like, this is only 10.53, and I've, I've seen a specialist, and I'm out the door again. Like, like maybe maybe crisis is, or, or our healthcare system is all relative to where you live. I came in from Central yesterday, but I'll tell you, the healthcare system on, on the Avalon is far ahead of what it is in Central. You know, uh, I think it's an individual circumstance and how long you might be waiting and your level of symptoms or pain and whether you've got a family doctor. Or, uh, there's a variety of different factors that creep into whether or not it's a crisis for some. I just got a family doctor in the recent past, and my one my couple of visits to that clinic have been very efficient. I got put out for, for blood work. I went to Major's Path. My appointment was for 1 o'clock. I was back in my vehicle at 109. So there are things that are working. The problem is that it's not all working. So you're absolutely right, Doug. You had a great experience. My experience so far has been good. But for others, not so much. So we've got to attend to the big picture all the while. Give our applause and kudos when we get the type of bedside manner that we deserve, when we get the efficiency we require. So you're absolutely right. There's different strokes for different folks depending on who you are, where you are, what your ailment is, I suppose. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I couldn't get a, I had a doctor in Central Newfoundland. Actually, I got dropped because I hadn't seen him in two years. That's a different story. But uh, then I found out about a doctor or a, a nurse practitioner here on, in, on the Avalon who was taking patients. And I came in to see him, and it was like night and day. Like I can call in, and in a couple of days, I, I got an appointment. And, and, and a few days after, I'm in seeing a specialist, like, like this honored of Buddy and Central. Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad it's working out for you. And I do appreciate sharing the positive interaction stories, too, because. We can get bogged down with nothing but crisis and doom and gloom when it's not necessarily the way for every single person, but we got to keep identifying the shortcomings and the gaps so that the pressure is brought to bear that we fill them as easily and as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Most definitely. I yep. agree. Good to have you on the show, Doug. I'm glad it's working out for you. How's your health? How you doing? Oh, oh good, bye. Good man. Good. Yeah. Excellent. Stay in touch. Okay. Okay, Take Doug. Care. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Let's go to line number two. Colette, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. That was a good news story for sure for yep. that gentleman, but not for everybody, as you mentioned. Uh, today, uh, you were wondering about 40 Days for Life. I know what uh, it is, but you go ahead. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad that you do know what it is. Uh, but it's a, a, mo- a pro-life movement of prayer, fasting, vigil, and community outreach. And it's a worldwide movement. This year, there are 622 cities and towns around the world who are participating in it. And it's for an end to abortion and to help save the lives of uh, unborn babies and their mothers. And so far this year, with with the movement, there have been 228 babies who uh, have been saved that we know of. Uh, Just one second before you go any further. How do we know that? How is that measured? What's the... 
Uh, well, if you go into the 40daysforlife.com, they're very reputable people. They started in 2007, mm-hmm. and as I said, it started in Texas. It's around the world now and different places, and they have reports. They're very reputable people, and they, they have reports, like, from people who are doing these prayer vigils who are standing uh, there with their signs and uh, with their outreach to people who are going, are considering abortion and uh they get the opportunity, some of them in cases where they don't have buffer zones like we do, to speak to people and to talk about the development of the unborn. And so it's um, it's uh, uh, wonderful that today that we know that there are 228 babies that have been saved from abortion. Uh, our community outreach, for, for the most part here, we're on the corner of Lamarchon Road and Pleasant Street, and we're there. We start September 28th. We're there till November the 6th. And our outreach is with our signs, uh, with one that's an ultrasound picture of a 10-week-old baby. Uh, another one is about the horrors of abortion, abortionprocedures.com. And one that we've added this year that I want to expand on was a, a sign that says the abortion pill reversal because a lot of the abortions that are done now are chemical abortions and uh, entail the administration of one pill uh, at the beginning which uh, 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 cuts off the progesterone which is a hormone that goes to the lining that you know supports the unborn child and it's cut off by this uh, first administration of the pill now with the abortion pill reversal uh, there's a number that people can call because because some people have changed their mind about uh, continuing with uh, this abortion and before the administration of the second pill, which caused the contractions and caused the baby to be expelled and aborted. And so there, there is a reputable uh, medical place that people could call if indeed they wanted to uh, change their mind about the abortion pill reversal. That number is 877 zero three 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 and there's medical people that would uh, speak to them and counsel them as to the action that they would need to take Colette you can put forward your position on this stuff as we're doing here this morning but what do you say to someone through consultations with their loved one their family their partner husband or wife and their spiritual leaders and they decide I'm going to terminate why shouldn't they be able to well what what I would say to them is that they would have to consider the fact that like uh, that this is their baby that uh, they're also carrying that's sharing their body, and that that we are all guaranteed or we're supposed to be guaranteed the right to life is the, the most uh, important of the basic rights, and so uh, there are helps for people if they are in crisis pregnancy situations and of course locally here it's the center for life that provides help to people who are in situations uh, and they can do counseling provide help and uh, some people do suffer after they've had abortions and say that they also do post-abortion counseling so there's helps out there right and we like the with the movement uh, we provide compassion and love and support to people who are in unplanned pregnancies. But the basic premise is that, of course, when you're pregnant, there is a child, and that child deserves the right that you and I have. And uh, on, on 
unfortunately, that's not what's happening in our society today. But, however, we do provide support. We have people who are with us today who who went through the trauma of abortion, and today they're standing with us uh, as part of the pro-life witness and uh, to the sanctity of our life. So uh, that's, I guess that's part of what uh, I, I would say to them, right, to make sure that you know what you're doing when you decide to terminate the life of a of your of your baby. I appreciate the time this morning, Colette. Would you like to offer a where and when if anyone is interested in participating? Well, it's on the corner of Lamarton Road and Pleasant Street. It's 1 to 2 daily until November the 8th. And uh, before I go, I just want to mention one other thing, was that uh, we have really uh, complained to our government about the $1 million that they've been giving, they decide to give to the abortion clinic, when we really felt that this money should have been more directed to health care services to help people who really had problems with their businesses closing and different uh, effects of COVID-19. And I did write a letter to the editor, and I did get severely criticized both in the in the telegram and on social media, but that's fine. That's fine, yeah. But I mean, the 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 matter is that they're giving a million dollars to an abortion clinic. When I just spoke to a gentleman whose business, 40 years, they've been a family business, and he's facing the closure of that. So I think that government should be more involved in trying to assist people in situations like that. Yeah, I I think we spent billions on those types of uh, measures, and for the most part, rightly so. The $1 million, of course, is to help secure what is available in this country as a health care procedure. So to not fund it would be a dereliction of duty, I would suggest, on behalf of I, the provincial I would, government. I would think that you, if you had a business, would like to be passed $1 million <laughs> from our government, from our tax dollars. So I do. You know, I, I, we did have a petition where we encouraged people to write their MHAs. And to say that, like, you know, that uh, I think they're out of order by giving a million dollars of our tax dollars to an abortion facility when there's other health care facilities, so much need out there in our society today for, for these tax dollars. And so I would encourage people to, who are offended by that to certainly contact their, their MHAs and their government to let them know that. And uh, so... Uh, as I said, that's a petition that we did submit to the government, and we have been passing it out through social media, through uh, Internet, through churches and different facilities as well. So we would encourage people probably to take that action. And, okay, uh, very quickly, you got to go. Yeah, well, I, as I said, I mentioned the Center for Life and how they help people in crisis pregnancy situations. And I want to say thank you, Patty, because, like, I've heard that you're really helping people who are struggling with housing and mental health issues. And I think that's a very noble thing to be doing. And last of all, I want to thank all the people who have been participating in the 40 Days for Life. We've been doing it now for 10 years, and uh, it's, it's a, quite a commitment for people to be there and to show their pro-life values. So thank you, and God bless you and all your listeners. Take care, Colette. Thank you. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As many of you have heard, there were some remains found in the wooded area around Paradise. The RNC held a press conference at 11 a.m. to discuss the findings, the gruesome findings. Join us on line number 10 is VOCM News reporter Brian Callahan. Good morning, Brian. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning, and of course, I didn't yeah. have to sit in on that type of press conference. I'm not entirely sure what exactly was announced, so what did we find out? 
Well, we now know that the identity of the remains found near Paradise um, at uh, Three Island Pond uh, on a trail there earlier this week are that of um, Trevor Hamlin. Uh, he's 33-year-old. He went missing in 2018, in June of 2018, and it's been an absolute... Uh, I want to be careful with an adjective, but it has been so hard for the family, obviously. They've posted today now that they are at least relieved. They have some closure with uh, finding Trevor, but... Um, yeah, it was a tough news conference, Patty. Uh, there's a lot to go through here, but the bottom line is the, uh, there's no cause of death yet. It's being treated as a sudden death, uh, and that's mainly due to the fact that it's, you know, the remains are skeletal or skeletal. So, you know, it's, uh, so the cause of death, if it were suspicious or foul play, it might not be as obvious as it would be, you know, if this was a more recent event. So, so that's where the RNC says, the, um, you know, they have archaeologists and anthropologists from Mun uh, working on this now. To determine the cause of death, that's the next stop, the next step. And, you know, of course, in consultation with the chief medical examiner's office, um, we do know that the remains were found above ground. So there was no attempt to conceal. Uh, you know, they were found just on the ground by a man walking his dog on Monday morning around 1030. And uh, other than that, you know, uh, they're keeping their cards pretty close to their chest. There's not a lot of information beyond that right now because they're dealing with skeletal remains. And until they can determine, um, you know, uh, the cause of death, or at least get something from that, um, they'll go from there. It must be an awful remote site because he's been missing for so long. I know that's a fairly sleepy part of the area, but yeah. it seems to me that, well, it doesn't, I don't know what it seems to me, but it certainly must be an awful, isolated, well-hidden area that his remains were eventually found. But it's sad news, and I remember the initial story here when he went missing, so I guess we'll have to wait and see what we find out about the cause of death. And, you know, I know his nickname was Pepsi, and I spoke to his family in the past, and I know that they've not only struggled with his loss and the grief is unimaginable, but they're also created a GoFundMe page to help cover funeral costs. I just mm -hmm. want to put that out there if anyone's so inclined. Is there anything else you can offer so far as details or questions that were posed with answers, answers not forthcoming? Well, obviously, uh, you know, they're looking... Now that they have uh, identified the remains... Uh, you know, it opens up other avenues. It, it may provide more tips. Uh, you know, they're certainly encouraging people now that they know, basically, uh, you know, it's about a 10-minute drive uh, from his home on Imogene Crescent, where he had lived to this site, as you pointed out, rightly so, that it's a heavily wooded path. You know, it is out of the way. What he was doing there, how he got there, all those things, uh, you know, hopefully they'll be able to piece this together and and come back with, uh, you know, kind of a, a timeline and exactly what transpired here. But other than that, uh, Patty, the... Uh, RNC say they're going to stay at that scene. So anyone in that area, uh, they're going to stay there to, you know, eliminate for what they call continuity of the scene. So just to make sure that no, no evidence is added or anything's taken away from, you know, as pristine as it could be when they found the body. Yeah. It's a very difficult story for you and other fellow members of the media to cover, but hopefully this brings the family somewhere closer. I almost hate to say the whole closure business because I don't I think anyone ever gets over these things. It's a lifelong weight on your shoulder so yeah. i'll avoid using the word closure i'll let the family characterize it as they see fit when they're able and wanting to speak to anybody yeah if that and ever comes gonna, to pass i was going to say too you know and not just their family you know there are other families that every time this happens and you know remains are found we know that there are certain high profile cases out there and families that are waiting word and have missing loved ones so it's also hard on them right uh, you know we have some closure here for this family but we know, without you know mentioning specifically, we know there are several still missing persons cases that are active and, uh, you know, who are also seeking closure as well.
Absolutely, Brian. I appreciate the time on this one, as difficult as it is. Hope you're doing well, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate that. Take care. Bye. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, just a quick reference before we take a break, and we'll have the, the call. Oh, I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> I think I'd figure out how to drop a call after all these years. Um, so it, this happens all the time, and it's just the nature of the show, nature of the beast, I suppose. Is For instance, when Colette called about the 40 days of life, and it's about uh, being anti-abortion activists and advocates. And people, I get why people get upset when they hear those those positions being made and offered on the show or in the media of any capacity, whatever outlet, I get it. I'm certainly don't. I'm not like-minded with Colette. I think people understand that. And so the notes that I'm getting about you're disgusted and uh, okay, and that I should be shutting that down. That's where I don't think that's the right play for me. Uh, if I was, if I'm unable to show just even the modicum of respect and tolerance or, or whatever the word is for people with that position, then of course we're picking and choosing my voices we're willing to hear from. Do I find it uh, upsetting and troubling and certainly nothing that I align my thought process with? Absolutely. And I've said that many, many times. But if we start picking and choosing who's allowed to say something, then we're you know, we're kind of setting ourselves up for the epitome of echo chamber, what have you. And if you're put off with what you heard by one caller, regardless of the issue or the political leanings or whatever it is, you're more than welcome to call and offer your counterpoint, your counterpunch, whatever it takes. Because, uh, again, we I think about this stuff all the time. If I'm unwilling to hear from one political side of the spectrum or another or one position on some of the societal matters of the day, then I'm not really doing myself or you or the station or anybody any favors. Because if you're opposed to what Khaled said, you're more than welcome to offer that opinion as well. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. How are you doing? I'm doing best kind. Just uh, had to step out of the House of Assembly for a moment to have a quick chat. Patty, uh, before I get down to my topic, I just want to, I guess, say and put on the public record that uh, uh, I, like many people, was very disappointed in the decision that Memorial University uh, Board of Regents made uh, to uh, discontinue the, um, the old Newfoundland and Labrador at the convocation ceremonies. Uh, they said it was about inclusion. Uh, I would view it as being exclusion, not inclusion. And certainly I agree with many people, uh, I think including yourself, who I think raised this as well, that uh, if we want to be inclusive, why not simply have the old Newfoundland and Labrador and the old to uh, Labrador. Uh, sorry, the old to Newfoundland and the old to Labrador and do both of them. I don't see why not. I mean, for me, it's as simple as the fact that inclusion, it's right there in the word. We're not including anything by taking things away. If there's a way to make it better in the air of inclusion, the old to Labrador itself is also beautiful. If Absolutely. you want to add that and hang out, a, uh, hand out a song sheet or something or other, then yep. let's do something else beyond this because... Look, if they feel like folks from Labrador who might be sitting in the Arts and Culture Centre feel excluded, well, then let's include them as opposed to exclude others. I just don't necessarily understand the thought process here, to be honest. I, I absolutely don't. So I, I hope they will consider re, uh, you know, revisiting that decision and uh, 
I know they're getting lots of uh, calls and emails and so on from people across the uh, province that are uh, encouraging them to do just that. So I guess we'll see what happens. Yep. Um, anyway, Patty, uh, I wanted to talk about a bill that was passed in the House Assembly yesterday. Sometimes these larger bills don't necessarily get the coverage and people don't necessarily, uh, you know, talk a lot about them because they're large, they're complex uh, sometimes, and uh, and people are just bit too busy with their lives to necessarily, you know, follow everything that happens in the House. But yesterday, uh, the government passed a bill uh, basically to eliminate the English school district and to fold it into the Department uh, of Education. And um, uh, it, it was uh, passed by the government. Everybody on the opposition side, uh, including myself and my uh, colleague Eddie Joyce, as independent members, we all uh, voted against it. Um, Why? Prime, well, that's, that's what I wanted to get to. Like, the main reason for me, uh, I, I guess because I can't say if this is going to be a bad move or a good move, to be honest with you. Uh, the minister himself, in speaking to the bill, basically said that his hope is that this will be a cost-neutral exercise. So, therefore, it's not about saving any money uh, that's going to perhaps be put back into education. Uh, there's, no, there's no savings. So it comes down to, well, when uh, we ask the questions over and over again. So uh, because they'd say, well, this is for to benefit educational outcomes. This will benefit the situations in the classrooms and teachers. And we say, okay, well, tell us how. Tell us how making this move is going to achieve any of that. And nobody could stand up and give us any information or any examples as, as to how this was going to benefit anything that was happening in the classroom. What they did say is that they had a consultant's report. And this was the kicker for me, quite frankly, because I was somewhat on defense because I'm one of these people who has said over the years, you know, uh, the school board was being used as a buffer, and when there was good news announcements, the minister would be there front and centre cutting ribbons on new schools, but when there was bad news announcements, we could just blame it all on the school board. So eliminating that 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 buffer uh, appealed to me to some regard. But in this particular case, we said, okay, well, what is this based on? And we're told that they had a consultant's report. That, uh, and based on the information in this consultant's report, it, the recommendation was, or at least one of the recommendations, because we don't even know really what was in the report was about, was to make this move. So we said, okay, wait, let's see the consultant's report. Let everybody see the report. Let's see what the recommendations are. Let's understand the rationale for this and why these consultants feel this is the way to go. Guess what? Cabinet document. Yeah, Sorry, sure. can't see it. Yeah, too easy to so, classify things like that. Our clients list or privilege is irritating. You know, yeah. for me, this is just my initial thought on it. Yeah. Is that government will keep referring to it as cost neutral because they don't want to be out there saying that there's going to be jobs lost. When inevitably, yeah. if we do this right and we identify the redundancies or the overlaps, people will indeed lose jobs. I mean, if, that, if that's not the case, then the exercise is of futility anyway. I mean, where was yeah. the downside in a relationship between the province and the school board and or the school councils if there wasn't a problem then why are we doing it because it's going to cost something to do this and consequently if there's not jobs lost i'll be a monkey's uncle and if there's not jobs lost and i'm not cheering for anyone to lose their job but if there's no. not then we just will continue down the road of government is great at not identifying redundancies and just keeping the payroll where it is for no good reason whatsoever so that's my concern here the next concern that i hear from many is 
what would this provincial advisory council on education really have insofar as teeth? Right, because the mm-hmm. district had a lot of operational control. An advisory council, you get the ear of the minister, you get the ear of whoever, like being Tony Stack's position. But that's a lot different than the uh, district itself with the operational controls that it did indeed have. Well, there's the operational controls, and then the other piece is at least you know, uh, while it did have its shortcomings, no doubt, at least with uh, an elected school board. You did have the ability, uh, you know, that if government were making, you know, decisions that went against, I guess, what the school board recommended, at least by having a community-minded person in a particular area, they could speak out publicly and say, look, this is not, you know, what we, we disagree with what government is doing here. This, this is not what we recommended. This is not what we would, you know, we think is, is the best thing to do. Whereas now you've got this advisory council, which is appointed by the minister. And they can make recommendations. Of course, none of us are ever going to see any of those recommendations. So there's going to be no oversight in, in, in that regard. But as I said, the, the big thing for me is, uh, you know, as I said in the House, there's no way I can vote on a matter, you know, in, in this regard, uh, when you're telling me, A, it's going to be cost neutral. So there's nothing to be saved. There's no money going in, you know, additional money going to go into the system that we need. Um, that we have now an advisory council and we're never going to know what the recommendations are and whether government follows them or not. And you're basing this decision on a secret report and you want me to stand up and vote for something that's going to change our education system fundamentally and vote on it, but I can't have any of the information to know whether it's the right thing to do or not. Just take your word for it that a consultant said this is the way to go, but you can't see it. So, I mean, it's a totally flawed process, and uh, in good conscience, maybe this is the right way to go, maybe it'll work out, but I could not, and other members could not support voting for something on the blind, which is exactly what it would be. It would be like going into a game of Texas Hold'em saying, I'm all in, and not even looking at your cards. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, and I've tried to think this through as clearly as I can, but it's difficult when I don't have all of the pertinent information that was considered, but I don't know how it makes anything worse. You know, does it make anything better? That remains to be seen. But I'm having a hard time coming up with how it makes things worse. Because if it makes things worse inside the bureaucracy, that's a potential problem for the day-to-day learning opportunity. But as long as it doesn't have a negative impact, and hopefully we can find a way for it to have a positive impact in the classroom, because far too often, and this is not aimed at you, far too often we worry about the minister responsible and Mr. Stack and the, the bureaucrats and the staffing levels and the cost of rent, when in fact if we started our focus with what happens in the classroom, then we could reverse engineer to then see how it's impacted by the bureaucracy and the levels of rent and the uh, numbers of people working. Because, you know, if we can fund it the way we're supposed to fund it and positive educational outcomes are achieved, then I can live with whatever bloody structure they want to put in place. But that's where we're not really where we need to be in education, as far as I can tell. We do. We've got lots of good, determined professionals. Absolutely right. But, yeah, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Last word to you before I have to go. No, Patty, listen, I I agree. And that's why we were uh, persistent in asking the question. Please demonstrate to us uh, either by what your vision is, what your plan is, or by contents in this report, please demonstrate to us if you want me to support this, because I'm not against it for the sake of being against it. Show me how this is going to improve educational outcomes. Show me how this is going to deal with ch- 
children with special needs and are getting the sports that they need. Show me how this is going to help teachers do their job better. Show me how it's going to, you know, improve the system overall. Nobody could stand up and say it other than trust us. We know what we're doing. This is the way to go and sit down. And that, for me, is not something I could just simply blindly support. Appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Paul Lane is the member from Mount Pearl Southlands. Final break of the morning. When we come back, Laurie is there in the queue. She wants to talk about health care. Then we're speaking with you. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Laurie, you're on the air. You know what you can't reach now. Hello? Hello. Hi, how are you? <laughs> doing okay. How are you doing? <laughs> I've been better. What's going um, on? Um, well, I'll just tell you, I'm a bit nervous. Because I'm a first-time caller, so bear with me. No problem. Go right ahead. Um, over the weekend, I had a slip, and I have uh, two discs in my back slipped out. So I've pretty much been in agony ever since. I called my family doctor, who is wonderful. She's amazing. I can't get in to see her for three weeks. Um, I tried to get an appointment in Whitburn. Couldn't do that. Uh, the lady at the receptionist at Whitburn, I said, well, what about going to Carbonier? She said, I'm telling you right now, at all costs, don't go to Carbonier. There's like a 15-hour wait in Emerge. So I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, I have literally got to drive over an hour to get to an emergency department <laughs> just to get this scene to, just so I can move. And, like, you know, it's not life or death, but it's something that needs to be seen to. And I have to try to sit in the car for an hour, which I can't do, just to drive to an emergency department somewhere. And I think this is like the first time that, like, the healthcare stuff, uh, like, it's really affected me. It just seems crazy. <laughs> are you able to uh, make your way to one of the walk-in clinics that are open? Well, they're all in town. See, there's no, uh, there's no like walking clinics around here. So what would have been an option for you where you are? Oh, well, I would have went to Whitburn Emerge. Oh, that's that been has, like 19 weeks now, yeah. Yeah, that's been closed since April. And to be honest, uh, I don't think it's going to reopen. So everybody that serves, you know, in my area has to go to Carbonier now. But you go to Carbonier, you're waiting. I, I was talking to a lady earlier, and 15 hours she was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's unacceptable. Like, I know this is not, you know, life or death emergency, but it's something that I need something for or I can't move. I'm literally stuck in a bent-over position because I can't straighten myself up. I have to use a walker to get around. And I, I just feel like, what am I, what am I going to do? I don't know. I wish I had a concise right? answer for you, Lori, but is it something... Yeah. Uh, here's what just what I would do. I'm not 100% familiar with your circumstances, so I'll just take this with yeah. a grain of salt is if I was in a spot where I was an hour away, which is completely unmanageable given my physical condition, do you yeah. think that maybe if you went onto one of the virtual offerings, you could at least get the ball rolling to maybe get some pain medication, for instance, and or whatever diagnostic testing you might need to see ordered? Is that something yeah. that you're going to consider? Because you can do that I, from home. I honestly never thought about that, truth be told. Um, do you have a number? Yeah, so there's like a virtual. couple of different offerings here. Just... Uh, okay. Just one second, I'll get you something here. Uh, da, okay. da, 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 boom. And yeah, there, there are several different offerings out there for virtual health. And not every GP inside their clinic would be doing, but I'm going to get yeah. you something here now. 
Actually, I'm going to give you a website. That's probably the best way because we're talking about getting doing something online. So why don't I get, just give you a website address? Okay, how's that? <laughs> okay, perfect. So this is an easy one, and it's just one of many, but it's one that pops into my mind all the time. It's a triple w dot medicuro, which is spelled M E D I C U R O medicuro dot C A. Medicuro dot C A. Okay. All right, I will give it a try. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Hopefully it's uh, something that can at least begin the process towards dealing with your symptoms. And if not, and if you get back to me and you need another tidbit of advice that I might be able to find, I'm happy to do that too. All right, thank you, Patty, very much. You're welcome, Rory. Take care. Take care. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, you know, it's the, I, I don't know, and hopefully she has some benefit from that particular visit. But we're told more and more that we're going to see, and you know, this is the worry that some people in maybe some rural parts of the province think and feel, is that when you hear more and more conversation about just go online, use virtual care, for some, like everything else we talk about, change can be very difficult. And when we're talking about change in the way we've interacted with the healthcare system, it gets people's back up. People get worried. They think that it's just an excuse to take your clinic away, to take your doctor away, to take your pharmacist away, you know, because that's the thought behind some of these things. For so many people that uh, interact with me is that why do we keep talking about that? Because you're giving people an excuse. But in Lori's circumstance, for instance, if she's able to get some help by going to a virtual care offering, then that can be nothing but good news, right? But I do get it where people send me emails oh, look, all the time and say, virtual care is just an excuse to get rid of my doctor. We also have to couple in on that side of the conversation is how the province, and most, most importantly, and especially Dr. Megan Hayes, who's the new Deputy Minister in Health Community Services, her sole job is about recruiting and retaining doctors. Can you only imagine the work that goes in to try to tailor a package to woo a general practitioner to one smaller part of the province versus in an urban setting. Can you imagine how difficult it is to try to get people to set up shop where we need them the most, where people have been without for so very long, but I'm not so sure that it's going to get them too, too far down the road. And this lady sent just in the email, cut the corner of my eye, and I saw, thought I saw the word chiropractor. Uh, yes, she says maybe try to get into a chiropractor. So that's a good one, too. Maybe, if Laurie, if you're still listening, maybe try a chiropractor close by where you live. That may indeed be able to uh, make you feel a bit better and straighten you up so that you can at least feel mobile enough for if and when you have to make your way into town to see a doctor or the emergency room or whatever else the case may be. So, Denise, that's a good suggestion, too. Maybe consider a chiropractor as well. Okay, let's check in one more time on the Twitter box where we see open line. Follow us there. Captain Red says that the district can't be folded into the government. It's impossible. They don't have the manpower, skill set, education, or knowledge into running schools. None. That's 100% fact, says the captain. Opposition is correct. It's costing more now than leaving it alone. Serious. I think I get that point, but, of course, it's important to point out. Those with the understanding of operational needs, how to run the schools, it's not like we're turfing them and they're not coming along for the ride. It's just blending the district into the government, which, of course, is going to eventually lead to redundancies where we don't need three people doing one person's job. But I, I think I take your point, Captain, but operational skill sets, knowledge, and understanding, of course, going to be important. All right, good show today. Uh, reminder, Kids Eat Smart Radiothon, beginning at 1 p.m., running to 5 p.m. We're going to be down at the Avalon Mall taking your donations to keep it going. 
All right, uh, good show, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Greg Smith, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.